Section 18 of Old New York by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey. Section 18. The Old Maid. Chapter 9. Delia's fire had been kept up, and her dressing gown was warming on an armchair near the hearth. But she neither undressed nor yet seated herself. Her conversation with Charlotte had filled her with a deep unrest. For a few moments, she stood in the middle of the floor, looking slowly about her. Nothing had ever been changed in the room which, even as a bride, she had planned to modernize. All her dreams of renovation had faded long ago. Some deep central indifference had gradually made her regard herself as a third person, living the life meant for another woman, a woman totally unrelated to the vivid Delia Lavelle, who had entered that house so full of plans and visions. The fault, she knew, was not her husband's. With a little managing and a little wheedling, she would have gained every point as easily as she had gained the capital one of taking the foundling baby under her wing. The difficulty was that, after that victory, nothing else seemed worth trying for. The first sight of little Tina had somehow decentralized Delia Ralston's whole life, making her indifferent to everything else, except indeed the welfare of her own husband and children. Ahead of her, she saw only a future full of duties, and these she had gaily and faithfully accomplished. But her own life was over. She felt as detached as a cloistered nun. The change in her was too deep not to be visible. The Ralstons openly gloried in dear Delia's conformity. Each acquiescence passed for a concession, and the family doctrine was fortified by such fresh proofs of its durability. Now, as Delia glanced about her at the Leopold Robert lithographs, the family daguerreotypes, the rosewood and mahogany, she understood that she was looking at the walls of her own grave. The change had come on the day when Charlotte Lavelle, cowering on that very lounge, had made her terrible avowal. Then, for the first time, Delia, with a kind of fearful exultation, had heard the blind forces of life groping and crying underfoot. But on that day also she had known herself excluded from them, doomed to dwell among shadows. Life had passed her by and left her with the Ralstons. Very well, then, she would make the best of herself and of the Ralstons. The vow was immediate and unflinching, and for nearly twenty years she had gone on observing it. Once only had she been not a Ralston but herself, once only had it seemed worthwhile. And now perhaps the same challenge had sounded again. Again, for a moment, it might be worthwhile to live. Not for the sake of Clement Spender, poor Clement, married years ago to a plain determined cousin, who had hunted him down in Rome, and enclosing him in an unrelenting domesticity, had obliged all New York on the grand tour to buy his pictures with a resigned grimace. No, not for Clement Spender, hardly for Charlotte or even for Tina, but for her own sake, hers, Delia Ralston's, for the sake of her one missed vision, her forfeited reality, she would once more break down the Ralston barriers and reach out into the world. A faint sound through the silent house disturbed her meditation.
Listening, she heard Charlotte Lavelle's door open and her stiff petticoats rustle toward the landing. A light glanced under the door and vanished. Charlotte had passed Delia's threshold on her way downstairs. Without moving, Delia continued to listen. Perhaps the careful Charlotte had gone down to make sure that the front door was not bolted, or that she had really covered up the fire. If that were her object, her step would presently be heard returning. But no step sounded, and it became gradually evident that Charlotte had gone down to wait for her daughter. Why? Delia's bedroom was at the front of the house. She stole across the heavy carpet, drew aside the curtains, and cautiously folded back the inner shutters. Below her lay the empty square, white with moonlight, its tree trunks patterned on a fresh sprinkling of snow. The houses opposite slept in darkness. Not a footfall broke the white surface, not a wheel track marred the brilliant street. Overhead, a heaven full of stars swam in the moonlight. Of the households around Gramercy Park, Delia knew that only two others had gone to the ball, the Petrus Vandergraves and their cousins the young Parmley Ralstons. The Lucius Lannings had just entered on their three years of mourning for Mrs. Lucia's mother. It was hard on their daughter Kate, just eighteen, who would be unable to come out till she was twenty-one. Young Mrs. Marcy Mingott was expecting her third, and consequently secluded from the public eye for nearly a year, and the other denizens of the square belonged to the undifferentiated and uninvited. Delia pressed her forehead against the pane. Before long, carriages would turn the corner, the sleeping square ring with hoofbeats, fresh laughter and young farewells mount from the doorsteps. But why was Charlotte waiting for her daughter downstairs in the darkness? The Parisian clock struck one. Delia came back into the room, raked the fire, picked up a shawl, and, wrapped in it, returned to her vigil. Ah, how old she must have grown, that she should feel the cold at such a moment. It reminded her of what the future held for her. Neuralgia, rheumatism, stiffness, accumulating infirmities. And never had she kept a moonlight watch with a lover's arms to warm her. The square still lay silent. Yet the ball must surely be ending. The gayest dances did not last long after one in the morning, and the drive from University Place to Gramercy Park was a short one. Delia leaned in the embrasure and listened. Hoofbeats, muffled by the snow, sounded in Irving Place, and the Petrus Vandergrave's family coach drew up before the opposite house. The Vandergrave girls and their brother sprang out and mounted the steps. Then the coach stopped again a few doors farther on, and the Parmley Ralstons, brought home by their cousins, descended at their own door. The next carriage that rounded the corner must therefore be the John Junius's, bringing Tina. The gilt clock struck half-past one. Delia wondered, knowing that young Delia, out of regard for John Junius's business hours, never stayed late at evening parties. Doubtless Tina had delayed her. Mrs. Ralston felt a little annoyed with Tina's thoughtlessness in keeping her cousin up. But the feeling was swept away by an immediate wave of sympathy. We must go away somewhere and lead plain lives among plain people. If Charlotte carried out her threat, 
and Delia knew she would hardly have spoken unless her resolve had been taken. It might be that at that very moment poor Tina was dancing her last valse. Another quarter of an hour passed. Then, just as the cold was finding a way through Delia's shawl, she saw two people turn into the deserted square from Irving Place. One was a young man in opera hat and ample cloak. To his arm clung a figure so closely wrapped and muffled that until the corner light fell on it, Delia hesitated. After that, she wondered that she had not at once recognized Tina's dancing step and her manner of tilting her head a little sideways to look up at the person she was talking to. Tina. Tina and Lanning Halsey, walking home alone in the small hours from the Vandergrave Ball. Delia's first thought was of an accident. The carriage might have broken down, or else her daughter been taken ill and obliged to return home. But no. In the latter case, she would have sent the carriage on with Tina. And if there had been an accident of any sort, the young people would have been hastening to apprise Mrs. Ralston. Instead of which, through the bitter, brilliant night, they sauntered like lovers in a midsummer glade, and Tina's thin slippers might have been falling on daisies instead of snow. Delia began to tremble like a girl. In a flash she had the answer to a question which had long been the subject of her secret conjectures. How did lovers like Charlotte and Clement Spender contrive to meet? What Latmian solitude hid their clandestine joys? In the exposed, compact little society to which they all belonged, how was it possible, literally, for such encounters to take place? Delia would never have dared to put the question to Charlotte. There were moments when she almost preferred not to know, not even to hazard a guess. But now, at a glance, she understood. How often Charlotte Lavelle, staying alone in town with her infirm grandmother, must have walked home from evening parties with Clement Spender. How often have let herself and him into the darkened house in Mercer Street, where there was no one to spy upon their coming, but a deaf old lady and her aged servants, all securely sleeping overhead. Delia, at the thought, saw the grim drawing-room which had been their moonlit forest, the drawing-room into which old Mrs. Lavelle no longer descended, with its swathed chandelier and hard empire sofas, and the eyeless marble caryatids of the mantel. She pictured the shaft of moonlight falling across the swans and garlands of the faded carpet, and in that icy light two young figures in each other's arms. Yes, it must have been some such memory that had roused Charlotte's suspicions, excited her fears, sent her down in the darkness to confront the culprits. Delia shivered at the irony of the confrontation. If Tina had but known. But to Tina, of course, Charlotte was still what she had long since resolved to be, the image of prudish spinsterhood. And Delia could imagine how quietly and decently the scene below stairs would presently be enacted. No astonishment, no reproaches, no insinuations, but a smiling and resolute ignoring of excuses. What, Tina? You walked home with Lanning? You impudent child, in this wet snow? Ah, I see. Delia was worried about the baby, 
and ran off early, promising to send back the carriage, and it never came? Well, my dear, I congratulate you on finding Lanning to see you home. Yes, I sat up, because I couldn't for the life of me remember whether you'd taken the latch key. Was there ever such a flighty old aunt? But don't tell your mamma, dear, or she'd scold me for being so forgetful, and for staying downstairs in the cold. You're quite sure you have the key? Ah, Lanning has it? Thank you, Lanning, so kind. Good night, or, one really ought to say, good morning. As Delia reached this point in her mute representation of Charlotte's monologue, the front door slammed below, and young Lanning Halsey walked slowly away across the square. Delia saw him pause on the opposite pavement, look up at the house front, and then turn lingeringly away. His dismissal had taken exactly as long as Delia had calculated it would. A moment later, she saw a passing light under her door, heard the starched rustle of Charlotte's petticoats, and knew that mother and daughter had reached their rooms. Slowly, with stiff motions, she began to undress, blew out her candles, and knelt by her bedside, her face hidden. End of section 18. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.